Welcome back, peeps, to Perfect.dev, where we give you cats the freshest dose of dev snacks. Now with your amazing hosts, Alex Patterson and Brittany Postma. This episode is sponsored by Builder.io, visually build on your tech stack. One of these days, I'll get that better automated. What do you think? Wow, that was so smooth, though. I asked the StreamYard folks, I, I posted out there, can I have like a video just automatically trigger off so I don't have to like sequence everything together? So they're like, oh, good idea. So I'm Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's dope. In case you haven't noticed, we have Unicravitz here with us today. CSS extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm very excited to be on the show. You have such beautiful design going on. I'm like super impressed already. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks Actually, so Alex did a lot of that, surprisingly. I surprisingly? What? I'm well, not a designer. Yeah, so he, he is very self-proclaimed not a designer, and I do a lot of the design work for Coding Cat Dev, so surprisingly that he put together the whole intro. <laughs> I think you're a designer. She, she, had, a, she had to throw a, a CSS term at me yesterday. What, what was the owl thing called? The lobotomized owl. Uh, that was and he was like, the lobotomized owl selector, a classic from Hayden Pickering. <laughs> yeah, mean, wow. right? I, I learn something new every day, I swear. So we are going to jump into it. We are The title of this one is Making the Web Easier to Build. And we brought an expert on to tell us how to make the web easier to build. Um, before we dive into that, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got started in this whole like dev CSS world? Oh, yeah. Wow. OK, my background. Oof, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> uh, probably like birth. I don't know. Okay. It, it was a warm day in July. Um, <laughs> no. So I really started getting into web design and development at a pretty young age. I, I was very into uh, this chat software called the palace where I was like hosting servers. And um, it was very cool because it was a visual chat client where I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with the palace, but if they are, they're going to be like, wow, what a throwback. Um, we'd have like these, cartoon doll pixel by pixel design contests. And it was a lot of fun. So that was sort of my introduction to uh, graphic design, if you could call it that. That was before I went on to Neopets, like many, many women in my generation and uh, learned HTML, built pet pages, had little guilds. Um, that was an influence. And then, you know, MySpace rolled around. I was making themes on MySpace. I was making the Sims skins and putting oh those gosh. on my websites. <laughs> Just a lot of tinkering, really. Neopet um, has like brought me into this weird emotion already. Like <laughs> such yeah. a fun show. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I learned Flash in high school and built some Flash websites. I went to college for computer science and graphic design, both, which cool. is a great combination, turns out. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Um, and then I sort of just really fell into the visual side of coding and learned about this word when I was in college called front end development. And it felt like it was like this perfect mix of just everything I was interested in, of writing code and logic and uh, that whole side of things. And then also just the creating really cool visual interactions and uh, unique websites. I don't know. I just really found my niche and I dove into it. 
Um, and I've been doing that ever since. So I, I started working as a developer amongst designers at this um, design lab at IBM in Austin. I uh, worked as a UX engineer. I worked in uh, design systems, building design systems. Did you work on Carbon? I did before it was called Carbon. It was like the, oh, nice. the predecessor to Carbon. <laughs> That's awesome. At IBM. Um, and yeah, it sort of grew from there. I started giving workshops and talks. I gave my first talk when I was 19. So I was like, pretty involved in the community early on in my life. Um, and it's, it's led me to where I am now, where it is uh, a DevRel lead role at Google, where I run the uh, DevRel team that focuses on CSS, UI, and Dev tools, which is all the things that I love and um, love that we can help push the web forward for other developers. That's really yeah, cool. That's awesome. That was going to be my next question is like, how did you get to be at Google Chrome? Like, how did you get in that DevRel position in those communities? Like, what was that transition like for you? I think it was a really natural transition. For most of my career, I was not doing DevRel. I was sort of doing that on the side. And this is a visual show. So I guess you could see all of the badges behind me that, that um, are just conferences wow. that before COVID used to go to. You kept all your badges. I'm so bad about that. I kept was... most of my badges. Yeah. Um, and I would just do like DevRel-like things. I didn't realize that was a whole job field you can go into where I would write blog posts and host workshops. I was really involved in the SaaS community, which which was in like 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, so I was uh, learning and teaching as I went and creating demos and sites. And uh, I loved giving talks at conferences. It gave me an opportunity to travel. So I always did that outside of my day job. My day job was oh, usually wow. focused on front-end development. And then this role opened up at Google, uh, actually on the material design team. And I thought, wow, what if I could do this as my day job? And I wouldn't have to spend all my weekends heads down coding, <laughs> building talks, slide decks and other things. Um, I could have a life. Imagine that. So <laughs> I went for it. Um, I, I got the role. I started on the material design team, which was a lot of fun. And then eventually I moved over to Chrome, where I could focus more on the web platform in general. Um, and less on design systems, more on the actual APIs that engineers build into browsers. Um, and I started getting involved in the CSS working group and other things. And it's been very much a dream. And I'm very, very lucky for my job. I, I have a lot of fun. It does sound like an amazing job. And so are you more focused on like developer tools for Chrome or is it just Chrome in general? So it's on two things because my team covers a few different product areas. We focus on the web platform, so not Chrome specifically, but APIs for CSS and UI. So um, that's working with the rendering DOM interactions team at Google to help build those APIs and help give them direction and feedback from the community about um, what's prioritized, what makes sense, reactions from developers, things like that. So that's like the web platform side of things. That's the, the CSS the UI components. Then there's also Chrome Dev Tools. So that's where the Chrome sort of Chrome is, <laughs> the Chrome of Chrome. Um, and that's helping build tools for developers. So we want to make sure that as we land new APIs, developers have the tools they need to be able to use them. At the same time, there's a lot of APIs that are out there that are very popular, like CSS Grid and Fluxbox. We want to make sure that developers have the tools they need to help build websites and debug websites without having to go searching for where to do that, just doing it directly in the tool that they're coding in. Um, so, so those are some goals. There's also other areas of that, which include 
testing and um, network debugging. Like there's there's other areas of DevTools, uh, but yes, I, I sort of focus on those different <laughs> product areas, a bunch of I stuff. I feel like really. since you and Adam have been on the Chrome team that the Chrome developer tools are catching up, I guess I'll say, because like Firefox, I think was leading the way with like Ooh. the grid tools. And I know I'm, I'm throwing Ooh. a burn out there, but <laughs> they have the grid tools and some really nice like things for CSS in the developer tools there. But Chrome is almost now taking over that space. I feel like the flex and the grid things are easier to do in Chrome now because they have the click box where you can click on it and you can just see like how your content will go instead of having to type in the CSS properties for it, which I really like. Yeah, we have a really great team. Adam has really been a huge influence in getting the design dev tools really um, finessed and having his expertise directly correlating with that team now, I think is invaluable. It's, it's tricky because when you work at a company that's a browser vendor, you really have to prioritize things, right? So how do you prioritize which APIs and which tools get built? I think since the inception of our team, we've been able to more closely prioritize UI developer needs. And that's sort of helped with uh, not only the dev tools, but also with getting things through working groups faster and into browsers faster. And there's there's also been a lot of work done by engineering to enable that. Um, but I, it's a really exciting time for developers, especially yeah. UI developers. <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed 2021 was a big year. 2022 is going to be an even bigger year for CSS and UI. Um, so I'm very excited. It's a, it's a, it's a good time to, to be someone who likes to build front ends. It feels like things are exponentially getting faster. Like we're getting more tools and more things like every day and it's getting faster and faster the farther into the future we go, which is awesome. And we're in a great space right now, I feel. Yeah, we've also been trying to work more closely with other browsers to just land things together because that's one of the biggest complaints we get from the developer community is, okay, it's nice that one browser landed this feature, but I can't use it until it's in all modern browsers or there's a really you know, strong polyfill, but then people don't like using polyfills because of course mm. there's the pros and cons of additional weight. Um, so it's definitely been a really great effort to see multiple browsers kind of coming together to try to push the future of the web forward. And that's where we're at now. I think that it's, it's more aligned than we've been in the past. And we now have support around UI and design because we can show through data that that's what people struggle with and that's what people are asking for. Um, and, and yeah, that's where we're now able to kind of focus more on. I'm, I'm kind of curious in that same vein, um, how, how is the relationship between Chromium and Google Chrome team? Like, what does that look like? Well, it's pretty close. I mean, Chromium is not just Chrome, right? So that's also yeah. the Edge team. And we definitely worked very closely with them and do continue to work closely with them to prioritize, like, who's working on which API, yeah. uh, you know, review each other's code also within Chromium. Um, when we launched the form restyling effort, which was like step one in getting more customizable form controls, we were in meetings constantly with other members of the Chromium team. Now that we're focusing on other things like within OpenUI, like uh, the uh, pop-up and other APIs. If you follow OpenUI, you'll see there's like a slew of different um, primitives that we've been discussing to help make form control styling a little bit easier. So those are very cross-browser efforts. And most of the APIs that go into the web platform are pretty cross-browser and cross-Chromium, <laughs> that, that, that too. So yeah. it's not just Chromium, it's also working with um, WebKit and with uh, Firefox and Mo Mozilla and that team to um, 
figure out how to best write these specs, how to best get them into browsers and try to prioritize them around the same time as well. Yeah, since you mentioned it there, I just wanted to bring up that um, we're going to have a whole episode on OpenUI, but could you give like a brief overview of what OpenUI is for those out there listening? Sure. Yeah. So OpenUI is a community group. So you can join it if you're interested in having a say in the web platform. And what it focuses on is UI components. So that is an area that if you've been building interfaces, you're probably well aware that styling form controls is frustrating and still not super robust. You don't have a lot of options with drop downs, for example. You can't even style a background color. You can't add like a little icon in front of a text element. And that is a really big pain point on the web platform. So what OpenUI tries to do is figure out what architecture is needed in these different components and break those down, figure out what APIs are needed. How do we maintain accessibility when we are trying to create more flexible components? That's a really big question there. Because with things like pop-up, there are um, there's like five or six different uh, semantic use cases, like um, tooltips, drop downs, there's dialogue, like there's that where it takes over the screen, there's menu, but all of them have the same sort of base architecture of like things you need, like a light dismiss. Um, what happens when you scroll? Does a light dismiss? Like the, those are the sort of questions that we've been discussing in OpenUI. And then primitives that build onto those. So for example, like anchor positioning is something that I'm really excited about. Could we have anchor positioning in the web platform? We don't have that right now, but that would be super useful for things like tooltips and drop downs and other pop-up like components, being able to anchor it to another element without having to do like yes. absolute positioning. <laughs> I just built a popover and I'm like, yes, please. Can we please get the tool? Yeah. <laughs> like that would be fantastic. So it, it's, it's that it's um, tabs is another area of conversation around how could we have um, tabs that enable more uh, flexible component layout mm -hmm. and styling while maintaining a semblance of accessibility and normalization across other components. So I'm sure there's a lot of research and stuff that's going into a lot of those. And are they built with web components? Is that right? The ultimate goal of OpenUI is to get them to be native browser components. But in the okay. meantime, they're built as web components, especially for prototyping and figuring out how we could um, not perfect, but get a better answer. <laughs> to standardize across all to browsers. Ultimately, at least I would like to see all these as native components. I think that's where the utility really comes in. Um, much like the other CSS APIs, mm -hmm. people want to use something that is available cross-browser without additional dependencies. Awesome. That's cool. Go ahead, yeah. Britt. I think you <laughs> Okay. I was just going to transition back over to web.dev because I wanted to know, like, what was the inspiration behind web.dev? Is that something that your team created at Chrome? And, like, a little bit about that. It comes from the wider DevRel team. So it's not, like, my specific smaller sub-team. Um, but the idea around web.dev is to be a resource for web developers to get um, information about how to build websites more efficiently to be able to test websites. There's a lot of tools on there to test websites. And the direction that web.dev is going is more around um, things that are more stable in the browser and getting a baseline understanding of what, what can I use today without having to like wonder if it's experimental? Um, what tips and tricks do I maybe not know about that could improve 
my developing. Um, we launched a bunch of courses, like learn courses. So there's learn CSS, there's learn design, learn PWAs and learn forms. And these are these free courses that are just bunches of modules you can go through and learn a topic area. So you can get a more robust understanding of a full topic area. I mean, we've been working with professionals in the community to write these courses. So we had Jeremy Keith write Learn Design. We had Andy Bell write Learn CSS. And um, yeah, we it, it's been really cool to be able to see Web.dev evolve and become more of a homepage and reference for people in the industry to not only level up, you know, existing senior developers and like their skills, but also people who are entering the industry to start with best practices. Absolutely. That... How do you, can you apply to like write an article for web dev? Uh, or is not it kind of at this question? time, okay. <laughs> but I think uh, that's, I'm not directly on that team, but I know that they're trying to just get a little bit more, um, more folks involved. So potentially in the future, but I, I can't really speak to that at, at this time. It's mostly coming from our team, but the idea would be to get more uh, people contributing. Yeah, I just, we have Mishko on our team at Builder now and like he's building this whole quick framework and we have Party Town too at Builder and like there's so much going on. I'm like, hmm, that'd be kind of fun to write something out there. So, which is you a perfect time to <laughs> segue into if I can find the right button. Today's podcast is brought to you by Builder.io, visually building the web. Builder.io has one of the most powerful visual editors in the industry. Unlike other tools, Builder actually produces the code for you. You don't have to completely switch out your framework either. Just use one of the handy SDKs that are available. There's no limits to what you can build. Instead of limiting your marketing team, start to optimize and let them do the work. This will allow your web developers to get back to the hard work that it takes for other components, allowing your team to do A-B testing and personalization. Stop worrying about bugs in production. Just use the site as it is, then you can analyze and start converting all of your customers with Builder's built-in heat maps. Stop limiting your growth with developers' long lead times. Start building, optimizing, analyzing, and start growing faster. Don't take my word for it. You can sign up for free today and start building the web visually with Builder.io. Wow, that was so fancy and professional. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That specific one I edited kind of together, but we had a company kind of do the middle part, but I am redoing a lot of that right now. So. I took an animation class a while ago and I quickly learned that it was not my forte and that it takes a lot of time and that rendering is very system heavy. Oh yeah. Uh, when I, when I crack open Adobe, uh, not Premiere, uh, After Effects, it's like shut everything else down. Cause I don't have enough memory <laughs> to uh, handle this. So it's, it's kind of funny. I start chasing around like, Oh, notions too much. Figma's taking up three gigs. It's like, yeah. Oh my God. Start closing down like messages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyways, sorry to detract the whole thing. We were kind of chatting about web dev um, before the commercial break there. Uh, I'm curious as we talk about that, um, probably the the number one thing that's out there is this the speed test. Uh, I feel like everyone's looking for like hundreds on on the uh, the lighthouse score and things like that. How much does that play into kind of what you're working on day to day? Is it is it that performance fine tuning piece or is it just 
you're kind of trying to make it easier. Someone else will work on the performance side. There, so there's so many different topics on the web, right? Yeah. It, you can't really be an expert in everything. Um, and so luckily on our team, we have folks who are specifically focused on Quora vitals and performance and figuring out how they can best uh, optimize websites and then uh, sort of scale that effort. So that's sort of like the DevRel side of performance and Quora vitals. Um, and it's interesting that you bring this up because there are these tools and we have Lighthouse and we have the measure page on Dev, and they sort of test different things. So it's important to test across multiple, um, I guess, tools. And these are all tools, tools <laughs> uh, to, to really get a full look at your web page. But in terms of my involvement with these tools, that's, that's a different team that I very much respect and uh, try to do my best in that space. <laughs> that's cool. Absolutely. You like burnt my perfect pick a little bit because that's what I'm going to be talking about a little bit later is the page speed insights test, mm -hmm. which is a great thing. But like, like Una said that you should do it on several different tools because they all like focus on a certain thing, or it could be based on like what you have running on your computer at that time. So you just need to make sure there's so much coverage and it's not your forte and you can't learn everything that goes back to that T-shaped comb thing yes you the, told the, us the broken comb <laughs> the broken comb yeah. nice um so i'm kind of curious too um just setting all of the the like hard work pieces aside um how, how did you get started with like uh i always say it wrong is it tools day and then oh yeah this podcast yeah tools day so that one i started with chris donneraj in 2015 or 16? I think I got his name right, Brittany. I was trying to tell her his last name earlier. I'm like, Donner Raj? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So we started that podcast because we worked together on the design system that predated Carbon that became Carbon, that, the, that design system. Um, and we would always have these really fun technical debates just about topics. And uh, that we thought would be fun to just record. And at the same time, we had an, this internal IBM radio uh, thing that was starting. And we had like a little recording room. And it was very much just like a grassroots internal thing. Um, but we, we were like, you know what? Let's do a podcast. This We were the first podcast on the IBM radio. And we had it sort of live. Because a lot of people would do um, like DJ sessions where they would DJ for like an hour. You could tune in. So <laughs> we decided to just kickstart Tools Day. We made it public from day one. And we started, started with weekly recordings. And then we realized that that was uh, too much time. <laughs> so we went to bi-weekly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but that was a lot of fun. And we kept that going for a while. And the CSS podcast started, so that's with Adam Argyle on my team, as a reaction to a lot of developers who've been in the industry for a long time still struggle with CSS. And so we wanted to create a resource that guided people through different aspects of CSS. So we broke it out. We went through the specs, the CSS specs themselves, and tried to translate that into a more human understandable uh, verbiage. So we converted like these different uh, areas of CSS that we went through like a mo module, sort of module by module. We went through um, property by property and kind of talked about the different options for that property, how to use it and like dope pretty deep. And yeah, then, it breaks yeah. things out and then breaks it down, which yes. I really like that you just 
you get more specific and there's a whole episode on like specificity and yes. <laughs> yeah. So that is probably one of the most specific podcasts about CSS. <laughs> Definitely not your usual podcast. Um, and then we converted that into learn CSS modules. So we, we had some feedback around, what if this was visual? Like, what if I could refer to this and like kind of like skim the code? And um, that has been really successful. So we were able to adapt these topics, get Andy on board and launch this as like another product, I, in a way for people to learn CSS a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah and that's, and that's on webdev, web.dev as well, yeah. right? Web.dev slash learn slash CSS. And provide different formats for people. So mm -hmm. everyone learns differently. Some people don't like to listen to podcasts. So providing that visual cue for them to go and like see these visuals, which I mean, it's hard to talk about code. So to see them and to learn from them in that way, I love that we're providing like different aspects for people to learn through. Yeah, I, I used to when I wrote blog posts, at least on my blog, I would read the blog post and put like a little audio uh, file at the top so you can listen to the blog post instead of reading it because I'm really big on audiobooks and like audio listening. <laughs> it's just different learning modalities. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Modality. That's the word we need to use for. I was talking about that. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious, do you have any other, do you do a YouTube version of that podcast as well? Because I was like, I was listening to the DevTool mini series that you were doing. I was like, oh, I'd like to see what they're talking about. Is there, is that thing or no? There are accompanying videos, but for CSS podcast specifically, there are not, there's not okay. a video component. Um, but there are dev tools tips by Jesslyn Yeen that is on the Chromium, uh, Chrome developers YouTube channel. So those are little like short videos where she goes through different dev tools aspects. Jesslyn also does what's new in Chrome dev tools. So oh, you can learn about, okay. yeah. Yeah, so you could learn about like what landed in DevTools and be on top of all of it. And then um, Adam and I both have a video series. So he has a GUI challenges video series where he goes through how to build something from zero to finished. And then uh, that goes through a lot of these like sort of tips and tricks along the way. And then I have a video series which is more focused on like topic areas, which is like, all right, here's dark theme. And let's talk about a few different examples of dark theme. Like here's container queries. And we're going to go through some container queries demos. So on Chrome developers, that's where you'll find all, all this content. Like we, we produce a bunch of content. Um, and that that's sort of like a next step if you're interested in learning more in different well, sort of formats. Another... Oh, <laughs> I had to find it. I hear Adam. <laughs> We've got to put it in our links. Sorry. <laughs> oh, how do you, how closely do you work or talk with other browsers and how is the web going to where we could get some standardization across the multiple browsers for like, you mentioned container queries and it just brought into my head, when can we use it everywhere? Like you said earlier, it's just, there's so many different browsers and it's so hard to use things until they're like evergreen. Yeah. So it's definitely tricky because there are at least three different engines and all of those engines would need to have the staffing and resources to build out APIs. First of all, agree on the spec finalizations that goes through the CSS working group standards mm -hmm. process. And in that process, you have invited experts from the community as well as representatives across browsers. So that's like step A, just agreement. And then you have to have the prioritization piece, which is, you know, prioritizing with the, all the other engineering work that needs to be done in the browser 
that this API should be prioritized. So getting the data around that, I think DevRel is like really involved in, in that piece. And then you have to actually build it. So the engine has to support it, which for container queries is a pretty big lift because that is a completely new way to uh, read components on the web page. And you have to uh, you have to use containment. So the containment spec had to be written and integrated before container queries could be added to the browser and integrated. And then there's you know bugs and there's the test that you the web platform tests that uh, the browser would test against and then implementation. So it takes a while. I mean, we definitely work together in terms of figuring out the spec prioritization and uh, the spec finalization of just like what developers are going to be writing to, to get a certain output. And then we try to, to support each other as we're landing things, but that's harder because you have less control over it, right? Because there's so many yeah. other moving pieces. Yeah. The CSS working group seems to have like a big job of doing like a lot of the research and getting, like you said, the agreement step down and making sure that it's something that you want. And then it's a process. Like there's just a very long process and then actually getting it functional is a whole other step to it. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for the people who write specs <laughs> and spend the time to, to get it all down in this pretty formal language. Um, Miriam Suzanne has been doing a lot of the spec writing for some of these new CSS APIs like um, Cascade Layers was just landed or oh, is landing is in like Cascade two weeks cross browser. <laughs> yeah. Someone might have to tell me about this. Yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> Absolutely. What the heck are CS? What like I thought CSS had this layering thing. What is happening? Oh, okay. So this is this is a a new entry point into the cascade. Okay. Um, it's it's definitely something that developers don't think about today because when we think about the cascade and specificity and how they interact. There's there's not not a way to like create an injection point. You have your user agent styles, which is you know Safari or Firefox or Chrome or Edge. Those are the styles that your user agent is sending. So you see like some baseline of header one is bigger than header two, and like the form looks like this. So those are user agent styles. Then you have site authored styles. So that's when you land on web.dev, the styles that you see in the CSS file that the authors of the site wrote. That's like the majority of what we talk about us does, as a developer community. Does the the first part, like we always do CSS reset on like everything that nullifies usually the the, the browser piece out of that's, all? Of that's a layer on top of the browser piece because okay. the user agent styles are the um, least, have the lowest precedence. So okay. then you would put a reset, right? And then you'd want to reset your style. So you would be overriding those styles at least a majority of them, if you want um, a reset. There's also normalize, which is slightly different yeah. than reset. Um, so yes, you would have that layer. Layer, a layer. Um, but it, it's technically on the same plane as the user's author styles. Okay. So so then there's also like local styles, which you could override, which override the, the user's author style. So um, the way that the cascade works is you have user agent, and then you have um, local user styles, and then you have the uh, developers' styles, the site styles. But then important reverses the cascade; it inverts it. So if you have an important tag on your styles, the way that we talk about it now is like, oh, it increases the uh, you know 
the specificity of that line of code. But really what it's doing is it's increasing the precedence. It's putting it into a higher level in the cascade so that it's overriding any other styles as another I've, layer. I've been told as a developer, not a, not a designer, do not use exclamation point important anywhere or you're fired. Like that, that <laughs> bad. Like this, I think this... a part of that is because it could create unexpected results. Yeah. And so, especially when you're working on a team and someone is not aware of an important tag, that could really backfire because they're still working on the same specificity plane, the same layer, but they're getting unexpected results trying to override a style. They don't realize it's on a different, a higher precedence layer. Gotcha. Yeah. Plane. So uh, this, uh, this cascade new... origin. These are cascade <laughs> origins. <laughs> so th this new CSS layers is like an addition right under that. This is the at layer spec, right? Mm -hmm. To do at layer. So at layer, yeah, you can do at layer. That's one part of it. You could like specify with that layer, your layers, you can name the layers as you import them. So there's, there's a few different ways to do this. There's like the layer function and the at layer uh, keyword. And the whole point of this is now you as a developer can have control over the layers that are within the origin of the author styles, the written styles. So you have more control over what has precedence over something else. You can say that I want my author styles to always have precedence over the reset styles. So you'll layer mm -hmm. that behind your author written styles, or maybe you have some utilities or like a design system that you want to use, but then override and make sure that your styles are overriding. So even something with a higher specificity selector in a lower precedence layer will get overridden by a lower specificity selector and a higher precedence layer. I'm telling you, this is why CSS is so hard for me. There's so much going on. This it's is so a complicated powerful. topic. I, I will admit that this specifically, <laughs> I, I did do an article about this on developer.chrome.com. And it. yes, it'll explain. I have a diagram in there that makes it a little more clear. All of this is like visual too. And again, yeah. it's like we're trying to talk about things that are like just you, you need to see it. So yeah. I was, was going to bring up um, a little code snippet from Coding Cat. Don't we use layers in the tailwind? That's tailwind okay. at layer though. It's a similar concept. So they're, they're using like the same concept of like layering your styles so that you don't have unintentional overrides. Um, yeah. You really have to know what's going on, though, because you could have unintentional overrides by doing it without realizing. So <laughs> it's important to like understand what the spec is doing, what this API is doing before you use it. And that's where DevRel and educating around that comes in. I, I think I might have found your diagram. Oh. <laughs> I also put out a few like short videos about what important actually does and uh, cascade layers and a few different things within that topic area. I yeah, there's important. the article. Scroll down to- Tell us about this toilet paper. What's happening? <laughs> That's just an example of BEM naming, which is what people used to do to prevent some specificity overrides. Hmm. Um, and people still do. But the idea is that that's all in the same plane, right? And so mm -hmm. you have to rely on something like naming conventions to prevent unexpected results. Um, but if you scroll down, this kind of this kind of illustrates where it, where it helps. Uh, keep going. I think that just this one diagram really. Well, this does really look helps. very much like what we have. So that's yeah, cool. base typography utilities exactly. Um, 
getting closer. There it is. This one. Yes. Let's zoom. Is it a image? No, it's it's back. an image. Might have to uh, do this, maybe. So those are the different cascade origins, and then oh yeah, there you go. Um, and then you have the way that the layers work. So I, I think it's important to understand important in this case because layered styles are going to be less specific than your normal styles. They have a lower precedence than your author normal styles. Then you have your author's important styles, which have more precedence. So those are going to override normal styles, but then layer important styles will override both. So layered styles important are gonna be the highest precedence of site out of the site author styles that we have control over as developers. But wow. the user agent styles at important, like the ones that they select on there are always going to be the most specific because you want them to have control over like their accessibility tools. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So there aren't a lot of important styles from the user agent, but there are some that are critical to just making the web function like directionality of te like text and, and those sorts of things that um, if you change it, you sort of break the flow of the web. And that's where the importance in the user agent would come in. Interesting. It's very rare though. You can actually look up like the different user agent style sheets from the various browsers. They have files out there on the web <laughs> and just like kind of browse through if you're interested. So, so this has fully landed now or are we just close? It landed in Firefox, I believe like a few days ago in stable. It's landing in the next version of Chrome. It's in Chromium right now, like in Canary. But it's going, uh, that version is going to stable on March 1st. Oh, nice. And it's in the uh, latest Safari tech preview, 15.4. So it will land. I'm not sure exactly the date of that landing, but that's also coming up. I know Jen Simmons is doing a lot at Safari too, trying to get, uh, Safari's yes. kind of been the outlier so far, but they're, they're doing a lot better now that she's working there trying to. Yeah, I think things. that she's making a, a big difference in the prioritization of these web APIs. Yeah. So this is pretty wild. Can I now say, like, it's okay to use important from a CSS expert? Like, it really depends. I think that your team <laughs> needs to have rules around it. Okay. It's like a very much, it depends. It's there for a reason. I think it's often used as a crutch. So, Best practices usually like don't rely on it as a crutch. If you have a strong reason to use it, I think that you need to comment the heck out of it <laughs> and make sure everyone's aware of it. Um, Ours but, is usually like in Angular material, I'm tired of fighting with this. I put it important. That's a bad reason to use it. And for that, I would say, please do not. That's yeah. like TypeScript any. Do you like when people use any in TypeScript? <laughs> see his face <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. doing the same thing but this is worse because you can't override it like this oh, that, yeah. that's true. a type that's like okay that's you could true. be more specific here this is like i have broken the ability for anyone else to change this if they're not aware of why yeah. this is happening and then you have multiple importance so that's where it gets really bad because you have this layer where everyone's fighting the important style so like oh, at I the think... very top of of i should bring this chart back yeah up. what would be the most specific is it because of the selectors then well, I'm saying if you have, it would then go to the selector specificity. So, yeah. it, I mean, not the selector specificity, it, was, it would go to the order in the DOM. So if you had important and then oh, you had like, another important like under it, that's overriding the same thing, then it would look at uh, that ordering. So you'd go to the because next. Because of the cascade. Because of the cascade and the specificity, which are two different algorithms to determine the actual style on the page. Wow. Awesome. Wow. 
Yeah, that's a lot. All it's right, we just is awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of CSS is awesome. I I love the Lego. Is that the Lego movie that everything is awesome? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just oh, reminded me of that. So what is out. what what is your favorite CSS trick? Oh, oh my gosh, that's a trick. God, like, I don't know. There's, I guess, I, like, did we talk on air about this owl thing already? The lobotomized owl. We did mention it earlier. That's a fun trick, I think. Well, uh, Gap with Flexbox and Grid really solves a lot of that. So yeah. we used to use my I used favorite, to use a lot of my <laughs> My favorite is like place items or place content mm -hmm. instead of like, and so three lines to center something is my favorite yes. like trick. Yeah, so I, I think my favorite trick is... Um, repeat auto min max for like auto place responsive grid items ram yeah yes. are you familiar with the one line layout site yes <laughs> so that uh you guys are like css nerd now right now like, what is that I, I put together this site with a bunch of layouts that i named and i named this in ram and um <laughs> that's probably my favorite trick so the reason it's called ram is because it's for grid template columns and it creates these sort of responsive grid items that will stretch to a certain size. And then when they, um, they'll like flex and, and when they can't get smaller, they'll like go onto the next line. So you don't have to write a media query for all of them. It's like sort of built in. And to do this, you have a grid and then you have grid template columns where you're repeating repeat function and then auto fit or auto fill, depending on how you want it to be in the space. Um, and then use the min max function to create a minimum and a maximum size. Yeah. Oh my God. This site does not have a dark theme. This, <laughs> this oh, it's just the videos. Oh, never mind. This is the uh, the videos. Yeah. So this is the web.dev link where I have a talk on this. And um, there's a website you can also go to to play with this stuff yourself. And oh. yeah, RAM, I think, is number seven if you scroll down. So it's literally one of my favorite layout things to use. I love it. I use this all the time. So this, yep. this is the, did you like kind of hack this on our Tailwind thing? I did. Like I created a the custom Tailwind config for RAM. And yeah. this is what we use in our card layouts. That's awesome. I'm just picking up on these things. Sorry. It's really is effective. Out, yeah. Is, is there a link out to the other site that we were talking about? I think it is on this page. If you go to onelinelayouts.com, just like the number one. Okay line layouts.com it's uh, the number one <laughs> I oh, probably thought of this. <laughs> um it'll forward you to the the glitch sort of demo page that I had built this on oh that's awesome yeah and then there's a video the video just hit a million views on youtube which is pretty cool amazing <laughs> yeah you're like youtube um, famous mm, <laughs> no i think i was youtube famous i have like a merch line i don't have that yet <laughs> You gotta get on that. Like, uh, sell that unicorn like hat. Yeah, that's a good idea. Raji uh, designed the unicorn for my site a long, a while ago, seven years ago now. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Not pretty cool. It is very cool. <laughs> it is very cool. So, what is one thing that you could do to make your site better? If you're a web developer right now, what would you say is like the most important thing? Oh, I, so I think just one thing that makes a really big impact is creating different versions 
of your site. And that, that sounds more complicated than I mean. What I mean is a lot of your users, as you just exhibited, are going to your site with different themes, like a dark theme or they might have low vision, or they might um, prefer reduced motion. So you can really customize your site to your users' preferences by using user preference queries. So you can use like prefers color scheme, prefers reduced motion. Um, there's, there's a few other ones. So making sure that your website is resilient and uses those um, affordances to really create customized experiences, I think is one of the best things you can do, especially with something as commonly turned on as a dark theme. If your site doesn't provide that for your user, I think that uh, that's the first one of the first things you can do to really improve their user experience and something that is intentionally created to fit your brand, to improve their browsing experience and your holistic brand across the web. How do you feel about using the um, CSS, like prefers reduced motion, prefers dark theme over making it more specific? And like using JavaScript and things to like actually implement those themes, or do you just use like prefers dark theme? Oh, I think you should absolutely use CSS where you can because it's going to be less heavy on your site. The browser already has like built in um, mechanisms to read for those preferences and apply them. So that's almost always going to be more efficient than having to load your styles and then use JavaScript to overwrite your styles. Awesome. I think a lot of that has changed over the past like four or five years. I feel like that shift, like everything can happen in the browser so easily now with like variables and things like that in the CSS side of things. So yeah, well, five years ago, we didn't have these available cross browser. We didn't have these primitives. So now that we do use them. (laughs) Yes. And it's, it's hard, I think, from people that like, it, it used to always be, no, just go use a package because it's easier because it has all of these things and you can switch and all that. And now it's like, no, the browser can do so much now. Like, just use it. And it's powerful. It can. Yeah. And you don't need phone. JavaScript for everything, which I yeah. think we're learning over 2020, 2021, just like move to this like less JavaScript or no JavaScript. If you don't need it, don't use it. I think that that's a lot of what open UI tries to do is also just make it possible to create UI, separate logic from styling and allow the scripting to really be about scripting, not about creating Mm -hmm. interfaces. And that is where just everything is kind of shifting in the web. I mean, if something is not possible to do in the browser yet with styling, you have to use scripting to override things. And it's never going to be, more efficient than the native implementation of something. But that is also what tells browser vendors and standards authors that people want something. It's when a lot of people are using an API, a polyfill to do something or something like SAS, which ended up inspiring a lot of CSS native primitives. Yeah. And we're getting nesting at some point in vanilla CSS. I hope so. Um, There's a spec and the, there's just a little bit of syntax discussion around what the best syntax is. A big challenge there is so many people use SAS still across the web that we can't create something that will conflict with SAS because right now SAS is able to work alongside CSS. So we have to figure out a way to allow nesting without like breaking you can't break. all these yeah. sites. Yeah, <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. 
I was just going to ask that question. Like, is is SaaS still a thing? And it sounds like it has it to is. be. It is. We use it at, at Greener. Yeah. It's actually more of a thing now than ever. If you look at the number of sites that use SaaS, it's still on the rise and pretty quickly. And I don't know like what that data is actually looking at because I think that a lot of new sites, at least from my perspective of uh, the ecosystem, will use more things like um, React framework, like frameworks that mm -hmm. have other types of primitives like CSS modules and um, like those things that you don't necessarily need a package like SAS to do, or you'll like pick and choose things in post CSS, or maybe you want nesting, you'll have like a post CSS module. Um, but overall, the number of websites on the platform are still increasingly using SAS. So I think like when, when your perception might be, do people still use this? And then you look at the data, it's like a different story. <laughs> That's fair. Cool. That is what do you think? Time for perfect picks? I was just going to suggest we transition. Yeah. Unless, <laughs> did we miss anything? Did we cover everything? I feel like you two could talk about CSS for the next like 12 weeks. I, I, I Yeah. This, this is the problem with when you start talking about CSS with me is like, we're never going to cover everything. There's yeah. always so much There's so to much. talk about. <laughs> we might have to have you back on for a very specific, like, let's talk about this. <laughs> That's what the CSS podcast is for. That's why we end yeah. up spending like 20 minutes very talking fun. about uh, position sticky on that podcast you're ruining my perfect pick <laughs> oh was it i'm just kidding you can't ruin it it's fine i don't know uh, what it is. so we're gonna uh you know throw it over the wall and you get to go first with your uh perfect pick okay cool so my perfect pick is a program that i recently started using ScreenFlow, for recording just like these little ad hoc videos and it's been so nice like i i don't think i've really incorporated a new uh just like software in my life in a while i've, I've been using pretty much the same tools but i just really started using ScreenFlow, and i feel like it's really helped me to make videos and i hate editing so it actually gets my videos out because i'm not stuck on the editing for super long does it do it all you. at the same time like you record it and you can edit it right there in the same is that the See, I do all of my stuff on Windows, so I unfortunately don't have access to ScreenFlow. <laughs> it's it's nice because you can record like your video and your screen at the same time. Your um, and it it tracks everything yeah. else too. So like if if you want to show like a zoomed in to your mouse click mm -hmm. or anything like oh. that, it takes care of all that. But you don't have to have it. Like yeah. you can show it just when you want to. Um, the, and like, your keyboard, like whatever you're typing too. Yeah, and it doesn't. It's not like burned into your video. So if you don't want to have a keyboard version, you can remove that. It's amazing like how much stuff it's tracking and keeping care of. That's crazy. Of. Yeah. I I've use using OBS. It a lot more too. <laughs> I used to use OBS. Yep. Exactly. I used to yes. use OBS. I use Premiere Pro. And honestly, within the last two weeks, I'm really starting to become a ScreenFlow fan. <laughs> it's it's just been the easiest software that I found to to do video editing, especially like lower fidelity videos where I just want to get something out yeah. and it reduces the friction. I'm, I'm finding like the more I get used to the tool and like relearn my fingers to go to like 
Uh, I think it's B for blade instead of like C for cut in Premiere Pro. I don't even know the difference between those. <laughs> What's the like, difference? Like now they're the same thing. Like to cut a clip at a certain it's a point, different key binding. It's just yeah, different key binding. And like now that I'm finally like getting into the flow of that. I feel like at work I'm, I'm able. You're to, getting like, in the screen flow. I'm getting hmm. in the screen flow flow. <laughs> screen flow squared. Okay. Um, All right. Brilliant. My first pick is PageSpeed Insights. We were talking about this earlier. You can go and just see how your website is doing. Free check just to analyze your site. And I love it. Use it all the time. Use Lighthouse. Use multiple tools. But this one is awesome. And it's from web.dev. Nice. Yeah. Is that ever finished? Still running there. There yeah. we go. There you go. You got a pretty bad score, unfortunately. <laughs> but it tells you where to improve. Yeah, yeah, it does. And the one, the, the worst one that we have right now is um, we use Firebase and Firebase UI and it sticks this iframe in there and it just I, does not like it. So. When I was doing our YouTube videos this morning, switching over those things, we didn't have any timestamps on the Guillermo Rausch, Guillermo Rausch video for Next.js 10 that we did last year. And I was listening to it and we were talking about this reduced unused JavaScript mm -hmm. and if it was a part of Next or if it was something that we could do. It's some of Next too, unfortunately, just because of how Next works. Like you get that first page load, everything else is super fast. So yeah, there's some trade-offs on desktop though. I mean, we have great score. See, it's fine. And that's where most of our users go. Very true. Um, this fancy thing, tell us about it. This fancy thing. <laughs> yes. Um, I do wish it was a little more powerful, but for how cheap it is and how easy it is to just make a smoothie, this has become one of my favorite lunches to go and make because a blade is actually in the cup. You just put your cup on the thing, mix your stuff up, take it and put a straw in it and go. So it's really is easy. This like the, uh, the kind of cheaper version of Ninja. It is, and I have a Ninja, and the Ninja does such a better job of mixing everything yeah. up. This is a tall cup, too, so it doesn't quite get the stuff at the top, which is frustrating. I kind of <laughs> use the straw to push it down in there. But like I said, for the price point and for how easy it is to just go and stick it in the dishwasher after, so easy. Cool. I um, love these like little shake things. I have a, a Nutribullet. Oh, yeah. It's Those similar. are good, too. Yeah, I've heard of that one. I might have to try like a more powerful one. My first pick, because I keep using it all over the place. Um, I, I hate having to rewrite all of my hooks for like every project. I end up going copying code. Someone else kind of decided they hate it too. Um, I can't remember the author. Uh, Julian CRN, maybe? Um, lots of common hooks out here. And now it's available in an NPM package. So Every time I need to go use like a, a local host or a local storage one, it's just right there. I, I can love import that. Mm. I'm going to have to bookmark this and their TypeScript too. Yeah, which is, I used to use, um, um, who is it? There's, there's another one. I'll have to look it up. Uh, Tyler McGinnis had put together one. I can't remember the URL. Anyways, I started using this because it is all TypeScript and NPM available. It's super these, useful. All this crazy code right here. Yeah. You just use it like this. Like that's all it takes. Oh, so wow. It's it's fantastic. I use it all the time now. <laughs> this it, is the theming example. Just use CSS. <laughs> <laughs> ah, oh, I picked a bad one. The, so the fun thing though on this though is that you can use like this will set CSS, 
but what this allows is the user to pick which one they want to override like their system base and it'll store it to local storage and pick that up. So it's kind of nice. Mm. She's like she, she she's very skeptical. Yeah. Mm, well, it's me. already locally stored in their operating system, whatever their theme. I know, but is. like there's certain pages where I, I use dark theme like across the board, and some pages I'm like, your dark theme I cannot see, and I have to like flip it back. And so if it always uses your operating system, it doesn't work. What you could do is open up dev tools and hit command shift P to open up the dev tools command palette and like type dark. Or light, and you can emulate it right there, so you could just oh, change it. That's cool. I did not I know you could do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to emulate in DevTools. I don't like going into an operating system and changing the preference when I'm doing some development. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I had to perfect pick the CSS podcast, where we talk about DevTools in the last mini series. <laughs> I was going to say, and there's your segment. You, you can pitch this all you want. Yeah, the DevTool miniseries, it's been pretty uh, eye-opening for me. Um, I listen to it in the shower because I don't have to watch it on video. So it's pretty cool. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you once again for coming on. We really appreciate it. And we're probably going to have to have you on again for something not CSS because the podcast covers that. I don't know. Maybe it's some Chrome, Chrome Engine thing. I don't know. I've got nothing. You should have Adam on talk about design dev tools. We That'd just cool. had Adam on to talk about open props. And we talked about a lot of the things, but we specifically talked about open props. Yeah, we should Adam probably have him go. back on to do the other other piece. Absolutely. Cool. Adam and Yuna can come on anytime they want. Right. Awesome. But thank you so much. It was so glad to have you. So glad to have somebody else who's passionate about CSS to talk about. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And both of your backgrounds are so cool. I'm just like, well, oh, thank you. Right now. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. Later. Bye. Do I exit? What happens? <laughs>